Sunday morning we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and uh, has us jumping sometimes between different books of the Bible and uh, in order to pick up everything and we want to pick up everything so we come this morning to Luke chapter 17 and we'll pick up things in verse 11 Luke chapter 17 verse 11 now it happened as he, that is Jesus, went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was as they went. They were cleansed of their leprosy. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God, fell down on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And this man was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not nine cleansed? But where, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God? except this foreigner. And he said to the man, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray together. We love your word, Lord. We love what it does in our lives. We love how it feeds us, how it cleanses us, Lord, how it strengthens us, how it returns perspective to our lives, Lord. We love to turn to it. And we love to turn to it in communion with your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that by your very present Holy Spirit, that as we study this, all that is bound up in this passage that is eternal, we pray that as we teach it this morning and as we hear it, you would bring your witness, your amen to it in our hearts. Lord, we love the supernatural of this Christian life. We love the supernatural that happens between us and you by your Holy Spirit through your word. And we ask that it would continue to happen in this time now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The cleansing of these ten lepers by Jesus occurred as he was making his way from the Galilee region of Israel, which is to the north, making his way then through the central area of Israel, which is known as Samaria. And Jesus is at this time on his way to the city of Jerusalem. This will be his final trip to Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion. Once he arrives there, a whole series of events are going to unfold that will end with his death upon the cross for our sins his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. He is journeying, and as he's journeying toward Jerusalem, immediately prior here to the feast of the Passover, all of these things are weighing on him. And I think it's important to really understand fully what's happening in this passage and what the lesson of this passage is, but why it means so much to Jesus to understand where he is right now in his ministry. So he is headed toward the cross. He knows he's headed toward the cross. He's headed toward Jerusalem where the religious leaders of the Jews at this time 
are not only resisting him, but they are actively plotting and now seeking his death. Not for any good reason, but because they're threatened by his teaching. They're threatened by the purity of his life. They're threatened by the miracles that he was doing. This constant stream of changed lives that, you know, flowed forth from his presence out uh, into Israel and the rest of the world. And they were perhaps most threatened by his tremendous popularity among the common people. So he knows all of this bitter hatred directed toward him, murderous hatred directed toward him, is all waiting for him in Jerusalem. The cross is waiting for him in Jerusalem. All this is going on inside of him, his mind and inside of his heart. This is his mental and his emotional condition as he's making his way on this journey. And as he and the disciples are making their way through a village... A group of ten men who were lepers were told in verses 12 and 13, they stood afar off and they cried out uh, to the Lord shouting, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And I like the phrase that they stood afar off because afar off is the word that probably best encapsulated their whole life as a, a leper. Leprosy was one of the most feared diseases in the ancient world. Um, one of the reasons was is because it was an incurable disease at that time. And uh, in fact, it's only been in the last 60 or 70 years that we have found a cure for leprosy. Though we can't really actually cure it today, we can only arrest its, its pro- uh, progression. The effect that leprosy would have had on a person who contracted it in the ancient world would have been uh, at least fourfold. The impact of of being diagnosed with leprosy would uh, not only, it would just go in all different directions in people's minds and in their hearts and in, in their, their bodies. And uh, when they, they would find out, here it is, I have now contracted uh, leprosy. One of the effects of, of leprosy on a person is that there would be a physical effect related to, to their life now. And given what we know about leprosy today, we can almost take these ten lepers or any lepers in the Bible and lay out their life progression as accurately from one case to the other. When the leprosy would have been discovered in any one of these, these ten, initially they would have begun to feel a little bit tired for no particular reason. Now, if you feel like you have every disease anyone ever talks about and you woke up a little tired this morning, you do not have leprosy, um, as you'll see in just a few moments here. But after the, the tiredness for no apparent reason, a sudden onset of that, then there would be, the, their joints would become achy and painful. And then one day they would begin to notice that white spots were developing on their body and especially uh, on their back and that the white spots wouldn't go away. You would expect something to surface but that it would go away after a time. But these uh, wouldn't go away and they would go from white to then pink and then to turning brown. Their skin would begin to thicken and start to produce lumps on their 
particularly upon their face, uh, on the folds of the cheeks, up on the forehead, uh, on the lips. All of that would become very, very lumpy. They would lose their eyebrows altogether. Their hair would turn white. And the appearance of their face would be very, very uh, dramatic in terms of the changes that were occurring there. Uh, slowly over time, their face would be, go from one where you would look and say, that looks like a human face, to actually beginning to look like a lion. The disease would then begin to, uh, as the lumps would uh, surface on their bodies, they'd grow larger and larger. Ultimately, they would ulcerate and become open sores, as if that couldn't be any worse. The sores would then begin to give off this terrible odor. The disease would attack their eyes, specifically the tear ducts related to the eyes, so that they couldn't produce any kind of tears, and that led to blindness in many people who had uh, leprosy. Then the disease would move on to attack the nervous system and because this disease of leprosy prefers cooler temperatures in the body it would begin to um, uh, it, it would be it, its greatest attack would be in the realm of the ex extremities of the human body so the leprosy would attack the ears it would concentrate in the nose it would concentrate in the hands it would concentrate uh, in the feet and as a result of its attack on the nervous system the leper would lose a sense of touch uh, in their extremities which means they would lose the sensation of pain so it would be very easy for a leper to be walking along with sandaled feet and hit their foot on a rock or on a tree root that was coming up out of a path do tremendous damage to their foot and until they reached their destination and looked down at their foot they would never notice that they were leaving a trail of blood along the whole path they could not uh, feel it uh, he could uh, a leper could burn their hands and not even know it and that's why when you look at Ben-Hur the movie Ben-Hur and lepers are portrayed there or you see actual real life pictures, ancient pictures of, of lepers. So often their hands and their feet were wrapped up with, with, clo with cloths and rags and different things. And one of the reasons was, was to keep them from freezing. A no they wouldn't know that their feet were freezing or the hands were freezing. And then the frostbite and the further damage and that kind of thing. So they would wrap them up in addition to the fact that they would sleep in these leper colonies or wherever lepers could congregate. And um, the rats would come at night and without any sensation in your hands and feet, your nose, your ears, uh, they could chew off a couple of fingers in a night and you wouldn't even know it till you woke up in the morning. So these were the complications that were a part of their lives because of, uh, of the leprosy. Now because they would uh, be hitting their hands and feet on all kinds of different things, injuring them, there'd be the constant introduction of uh, infection and, and as these parts of their bodies became infected over and over again, their bones would shorten, the tendons would shrink and, and uh, pretty soon their hands and feet would become very unfunctional. They would kind of represent uh, almost like claws and ultimately from the, their head to their toe they would just become this series of, of open oozing sores. By this time the disease would then begin to attack their respiratory system producing ulcers on their uh, vocal cords so that their voice would become very very hoarse and uh, they would begin to breathe now with a very very noticeable wheeze ultimately all these things would roll together and produce death in a person 
over a period of about eight to ten years. And to die as a leper was essentially to rot uh, to death. Now, if all of that wasn't enough physically, on top of the physical consequences of being a leper, there were social consequences to being a leper. And the single great social consequence of being a leper in those days was isolation. And it was uh, necessarily so in the culture, because they didn't know how the disease was spread. So quarantine, isolation was the uh, the means by which they they could deal with it and and so lepers were forced to keep their distance from all non lepers and any time a leper might be lying by the side of the road or off sitting under a tree or sitting anywhere and that leper saw a non leprous person approaching them they were required by law to rise up and call out unclean 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 until that person realized there are on a, on a direct line to come into contact with a leper and could then change their, uh, their direction. So these were the things that they faced. They couldn't live in a city any longer. They had to live uh, outside of, of, of a city where all of the other uh, lepers lived. They could no longer touch uh, any non-leper, uh, whether that was their wife whether that was their children, whether that was their grandchildren, whether that was their friends, for the rest of their life, they couldn't touch a, a non-leprous person. Uh, you, can, you can take holding hands for granted until you became a leper. You could take a kiss for granted or a hug for granted until you became a leper. And then now all those things are in your rearview mirror. That's past tense for you for the rest of your life, even among the people that you love uh, most in, in life. So as the disease had, it, the consequences were so hard physically, but it also had this whole social stigma associated with it, and more than a stigma, it, it resulted in a life of isolation, a complete isolation from everything that was normal, everything that was healthy. Your whole world now were other leprous uh, human beings. So usually when you contract a, a, a serious disease or an incurable disease, you have the confidence that, all right, I have this, I'm facing this, but at least I have the support of my family. I have the closeness of my family to me. I have that, those relationships are, are able to be near and precious to me. All of that was taken away. Uh, leprosy robbed the leper of all of that in their life. And then on top of all of this, there were the emotional and the mental consequences of the disease. And what it produced in a person was an absolute desperation for a cure, for cleansing. And then it produced within them a complete hopelessness, the hopelessness that comes with realizing I have an incurable uh, disease. And so all of this desperation, all of this mere hopelessness uh, of, of the leper... All of it was demonstrated in the fact, as we're told about these, these lepers, when they uh, spoke to Jesus, we're told they lifted up their voices in calling out to Jesus. That's a nice way. I like the King James. I like the English. I like understatement. And so, God bless them. This is a King James version of the Bible. It's a wonderful translation. But the accurate translation of what it is, at least it actually is happening here in, in this situation, is they did more than lifted up their voices to Jesus. They were shouting at the top of their lungs. 
In the same way that you and I would if we had heard about Jesus, this is a man who cleanses lepers and all. They are shouting, they are desperate, and their prayer to Jesus here revealed it. I remember as a kid, sometimes we would go to the movies, and you'd see some movie where someone was shipwrecked on a uh, deserted island or a plane crash and the plane had landed in some kind of a mountain range and there's snow and everything and now the whole tension that builds related to the rescue and uh, here I am a kid on the edge of my seat and every time a plane would go over and they'd run outside of the wreckage of the existing plane and wave and try to set fires and all I'm, I'm waving with them in my heart and setting fires and, and uh, uh, all of the, the feeling and then the great relief that happens when they're finally uh, rescued and so there was, uh, there was this kind of desperation behind their, their cries. So the point that I'm making in all of this is that when Jesus cleansed these men, he did a really big thing. It wasn't like he added bacon to their eggs that morning. That's a bad, that's a bad illustration. He wouldn't have added bacon. <laughs> spam. Where, is, where does spam come from? Probably the same deal, huh? I don't know. So what he's done here is just absolutely huge for these, these ten. Now, they're crying out to Jesus teaches us a couple of things about these men. And there's a lot more about these men in the passage than just the fact that they ended up cleansing their leprosy. One of the things we learn about these men in the passage is that they were men of a great faith concerning Jesus. They believed that he could cleanse them of the leprosy. Another thing that we learn is that they were men of prayer because they publicly, openly, unashamedly cried out and prayed to Jesus for the cleansing of, of their leprosy. Now, Jesus has commanded them in verse 14. He said, go show yourself to the priests. And the implication was, is they would turn from where they were, make their way to Jerusalem to go show themselves uh, and their cleansed bodies now to a priest, that somewhere between that turning and getting to a priest, they would be cleansed of their leprosy. So you look at this and you say, why doesn't Jesus just cleanse them of their leprosy? Why in the world does he involve the priests? Why does he involve this journey for them and going to put them in front of the priests and and all? In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, the law of Moses contained a ceremony that was called the ceremony for the leper in the day of his cleansing. So a leper, a former leper, would be brought before a priest The priest would then examine him to determine that he had been cleansed of his leprosy, and then he would perform a ceremony kind of celebrating the cleansing. And the ceremony went something like this. The priest would gather four articles together. He would gather two living birds. Both of them had to be ceremonially cleaned, probably doves. He would then take a piece of cedar wood. He was instructed to take some scarlet, some scarlet yarn, and then also some hyssop, which was, a, was and is a plant in, in the Middle East. He would take an earthen vessel, we would call it a pot, an earthen vessel, and he would fill it part way with living water, water that came from a stream, a river, moving water. 
He would take the one dove and he would wring the neck off of the dove and he would then allow the blood to drain into that water. He would then put that dove by the side. He'd take the living dove and um, the, also the cedar, the scarlet yarn, and he would uh, take the hyssop and he would mix them into this water that was now a bloody water. And he would then take the uh, hyssop and dip it into that water, and he would sprinkle that water and, and that uh, blood onto the cleansed leper and then declare him uh, to be uh, clean. He would then take the living bird and he'd release it. And the bird would take and fly away in the presence of, of the, the cleansed leper. And the entire ceremony is an Old Testament picture of what the Messiah would do, Jesus would do, related to the greater incurable disease of man, and that is uh, the cleansing of sin. And so, just as the first bird was killed in an earthen vessel, Jesus was born into this world in an earthen vessel. His body was made up of the same elements from the dirt that ours were, from from the Garden of, of Eden. And he died for our sins in that body. He died for our sins in that earthen vessel. Birds do not belong in clay jars. They don't belong in earthen vessels. They belong in the heavens. They belong flying. God Almighty does not belong in a human body. He belongs in heaven. But his love for us was so great in the light of our need that he was willing to take on a human body that he might die on the cross to provide the propitiation, the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. And while Jesus was on the cross and thirsting, they lifted up a sponge with liquid on it on a hyssop plant in order to try and, and quench his thirst a little bit. And, and so the hyssop plant represented at the cross. The scarlet yarn speaks of Jesus' blood shed for the cleansing of our sin. The blood and the water mixed together in that bowl. You remember when Jesus had given up the ghost, he had given up his spirit on the cross and was now dead. The Roman soldier takes the spear in order to assure his death, takes the spear and brings it up underneath his rib cage and punctures the pericardium in the heart so that both water and blood come out from the side of, of Jesus. And, and so the uh, picture of, of all of that represented here in even this cleansing of the leper, the cedar wood, of course, speaking of the cross, the two birds. But why the two birds? Because it's impossible for one bird to represent the fullness of what Christ has done for us in cleansing us from our sin. The first bird symbolized Jesus' death on the cross for our cleansing. The second bird symbolized His resurrection from the dead, His ascension into heaven. The gospel, the good news, the gospel is not just that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but that He was buried and He rose again on the third day as an evidence of His victory and His authority over this thing called death. And so, as that leper watched that dove flying freely into the heavens, I mean, his heart would just soar 
over the cleansing that he had received uh, in order to be cleansed of this leprosy. And, and the only way that a, what a, would happen in a leper's heart, what a leper would feel at being cleansed of his leprosy, the only feeling that could be greater in life is to be a sinner that realizes that I have now been cleansed of my sin because of the sacrifice of, of Jesus Christ. All of it a beautiful picture of Jesus. And thus when Jesus tells these lepers, go show yourself to the priests, he knew that when they got to Jerusalem and they showed up before the priests cleansed of their leprosy, that the first question that the, the priests would ask of the lepers is, how did you get cleansed of your leprosy? When did this happen? Jesus also knew they would ascribe the victory or this cleansing to Jesus because they knew him by name. They are plotting his death. They want to murder him. And Jesus sends this stream of cleansed lepers before them. He's giving them amazing light, amazing revelation. They will crucify him in the face of unbelievable evidence for him being the Messiah. In the face of undeniable proof that he is the Messiah just as Jesus wanted it to be. They wanted to be rid of him. He wasn't in Jerusalem yet. But you can't get rid of Jesus that easily. He kept sending this stream of cleansed lepers to them all the whole time in his, his public ministry. Now, one of the fascinating things about this ceremony of the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing, as it's re recorded there in Leviticus chapter 14, is that the Lord gave this ceremony to be performed in the cleansing of an incurable disease. And from the time that God gave that law to Moses, and it was put in Leviticus chapter 14, until the time of Jesus, 1,500 years... We have no record of a single priest performing the ceremony for the celebration of the cleansing of the leper on the day of his cleansing. Not one time. Not one priest performed the ceremony. There are two lepers that were cleansed in the Old Testament, one Miriam prior to Leviticus chapter 14. Naaman the Syrian, he was cleansed of his leprosy, but he was a Syrian, never went to a Jewish priest related to it. So here is this book where all these priests are going through the law. They're learning the law to be good priests. This is their seminary that they're going through. They get to Leviticus chapter 14. The instructor says, you know, just scan that. You're never going to use it. Not going to happen. Jesus comes into the world, into the human condition. And all of a sudden, lepers are coming from all over Israel to have this ceremony performed. Alex, how does that ceremony go? I don't even know what happens here and where is it. I don't know. I think it's in the scroll of Leviticus. I can't tell you where. Pretty soon they were going to become experts on where that was found in the book of, of Leviticus. And so all of this cleansing of the lepers, sending them to the priests, was Jesus' way of communicating 
to the darkness of their heart, but to Israel as a whole. The Messiah is here. The Messiah is here. The Messiah is here. Now, to the credit of these, these men is they listened to what Jesus commanded them to do, and they obeyed him. They turned, began to go in the direction of where they knew they could find a priest, and their obedience, we're told, brought cleansing. So, what else do we know about these men? We know they're men of prayer. We know they're men of faith. But now we also learn that they are obedient men. Now, this, there is a lot to commend in, in these, these men. And it's, and it's very important to remember that there's a lot to commend in these guys if we're going to understand what I think is, is the power of the message and the reason that this is in, in the Bible. Now, notice their response upon being cleansed, verses 15 and 16. Nine of them continued on their way and uh, went and presented themselves uh, evidently to a priest and then went on presumably about their lives. Only one in the ten returned to Jesus to give him thanks for what he had, he had done. And it's, it, it's a beautiful picture. I don't know. I didn't get a chance to Google it. Um, painting, Jesus cleanses ten lepers. I hope Rembrandt did one. But um, to see if this has been done in oil someplace, you know. But it was, it's a tremendous picture. This man comes and he is, he's making his way from afar off. He is praising God for this miracle that's occurred in his life. He gets into the presence of Jesus. He falls down on his face before Jesus. He's worshiping. He's thanking. He's praising Jesus. I mean, it, it's, a, it's the picture of gratitude. It's not just words coming out of his mouth. Everything about his body, his posture, how he handles his body, the positions that he takes, the words coming out of his mouth, it's just thankfulness flowing in all directions. This is where this guy, uh, guy is. Then on the other hand, nine of them don't even return at all to express any thanksgiving to Jesus. Now, you know what's so searching to me about this passage? And it isn't some gigantic, you know, wow, I never saw that before kind of thing in the passage. Sometimes it's the quiet things that we see over and over again. But the thing that is so searching to me about this passage is that Jesus noticed the thanksgiving in the one. And he, and he noticed the lack of thanksgiving in the nine. So he, he declares there in verse 17, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Now, who did he say that to? I don't think he said it to his disciples. I don't think he spoke it to any crowd that had kind of maybe gathered by this time. I think he's just talking to himself. Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there, were, there not, were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And this passage has always really impacted me in the subject of thankfulness because it tells me that Jesus notices my thankfulness and our thankfulness. And not only does he notice it, but it's important to him. It's not just nice for him. It's important to him. 
And it also tells me that our thankfulness blesses him. And I love knowing that. I can take a long walk with that. You don't have to come up and slug me and tell me to be more thankful in my life. Don't have to do it. He's been so good to me, I'm looking for ways to bless him. There aren't enough ways to bless him as far as I'm concerned in the Scriptures, the power of the Holy Spirit. So all you have to do is tell me he notices it, it's important to him, and it blesses him. And you can't have a person now that's more motivated to to be thankful and to express thankfulness uh, toward him. And one of the things that is really instructive to me about this passage is that there is so much about these nine men to like. They were men of prayer, and Jesus likes that. They were men of faith, and Jesus likes that. They were obedient, and Jesus likes that. But the absence of thanksgiving marred the whole thing for him. It spoiled the entire event, not for them, but spoiled it for Jesus. Think about obedience, think about prayer, think about being a man or a woman of faith, and those are all great things and they're vital things, but one of the things that the passage teaches us is they cannot ever make up for a lack of thankfulness in the life of a Christian. They can never bless the heart of God in the area that thankfulness uniquely blesses the heart of God. When the Lord does something wonderful in our lives, some miracle, large or small, it isn't like some power force out in the universe, some impersonal, impersonal energy out there has done it for us. The God of the Bible is a personal God. It's a personal God that has done these things for us. And our thankfulness directed toward Him allows everyone involved, including God, to thoroughly enjoy these experiences in our life. It would have been so easy for these nine to have taken two and a half minutes to just come over and say thanks and allowed everyone, including the heart of God, to be blessed by, by the experience. Just a simple expression of praise and thanksgiving would have done it. There is a sadness in Jesus in verses 17 and 18 that I don't like. I notice it and I don't like it. And I notice what the cause of that sadness is. And one of the things the passage does for me is it challenges me and I say to myself, I never want a lack of my thankfulness to mar any blessing or experience that God has brought into my life and I never want to be guilty of saddening him in the way that he is saddened in this situation. And I think that perhaps those of us who have known the Lord the longest 
walk with the Lord the longest, know the most about Him, the most well-versed in the Scriptures. Perhaps the, this passage teaches that we have to be the most careful in this area. The one that comes back to thank Him is a Samaritan. The other nine are obviously Jews. The knowledge of God that was possessed by the Samaritans was not quite infinitely inferior to the knowledge that the Jews had, but it was very, very inferior. So here are these Jews with, you know, superior knowledge of God, superior knowledge of His Scriptures, and they're the ones that fail to give thanks. So I ask myself, Lord, I want to learn everything in this passage. Is it easier the long that we, longer we walk with Him to begin to just start to take His blessings for granted and then to cease to give Him thanks for the miracles large and small that He brings to our lives every day and then marring the the blessing that He wants to be in the middle of in terms of us celebrating and what comes to His heart by, by thanksgiving. And I, and I think that we want to be careful there. I have no interest in beating anybody up this morning. We're mature adults. And you can't change a person by beating them up. But it's in the passage, so I bring it out. And I, and, I, and I look at it and I just think to myself, surely one of the things that this passage teaches is that the longer we walk with God, the better we know God, the more that we know about God, our thanksgiving should be increasing in its expression to Him and not decreasing in our lives. And that I think that the passage teaches Number one, what thankfulness means to Jesus, but also that we can be prone to move from it. I want to take a moment, too, just to talk about this lesson a little bit in the light of worship, what we do when we gather together, not just on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, but women's Bible study and men's Bible study and, and uh, the married ministries and things and singles and, and all the home fellowships and stuff that occur during the week and other things also, where we come together and a part of our coming together is singing songs to the Lord, lifting up praise and worship and, and thanksgiving uh, to Him. Some of you may be very new to a church, I mean, you know all about what it means to go to a high school basketball game or a professional basketball game or athletic event or an academic center. And there's all kinds of environments that you're completely familiar with. But coming into a church, this is altogether a new thing for you. So you make your way from the car and you come in and your friends said they'd meet you here and everything and take you to Mimi's afterward. I mean, whatever they got to do, right? So you come in and... And you, by the time you get into this room, you think to yourself, how many people are going to shake my hand? I'm almost worn out. Twenty people shook my hand. I haven't had my hand shook that in 20 years in that way. You come into the room, you sit down, things are going, you understand, and all right, they opened up in prayer, and somebody read from the Bible, and I get all that. Then they start the singing part. And you don't even sing in the shower, let alone sing in, a, in public with people around you that could hear, begin singing to the Lord immediately as a Christian. It's important. So much of what we sing to the Lord as we're directed in worship is the expression 
of gratitude and thanksgiving to him. Do you know when we assemble together, it's not just us. We, we need blessing. God knows we need blessing and he blesses us. But he is present. We want him to enjoy this experience also. In fact, that's what's most important to us. And so, as we lift up this song and we, and we sing the songs out and we sing those praises to Him, then this assembling together of the saints can be what He wants it to be and, and what, what He enjoys and what He is actually due from our lives. So you don't have to... We're not going to put you on the worship team next week, but don't sit on your hands uh, or, or zip your lip when you come in. Begin by mouthing the words. Then speak them out and then begin to sing them, but become a worshiper in public environments. Sing these songs of praise to God. He deserves hearing them. He deserves that worship and thanksgiving. And we have a need to do that. And one of the reasons we turn the sound up fairly loud in this room is so that people could, can sing out loud and not be concerned that they're ruining things for everyone sitting around them on the base of their voice. Listen, I haven't always been a great singer. Here, let me just try. Danke Shane. No. After a while, you learn how not to be painful to people. But I remember... I was a new Christian, and I mean, this whole thing, you walk into the church, I'm sit, you're sitting four rows from the front, and the whole thing, service after service, and, and uh, I got saved, and I mean thoroughly saved, I'm just thrilled with God, and, and I'm, I'm singing these songs to the Lord, I mean, just, it's pretty good. And, uh, and so, after, after one service, and I had never been conscious of the people sitting around me, and after one service... You know, they got over and we're shaking hands with whoever's around us and stuff. One guy turned around and looked at me and he said, he said, I, I, I think you really love the Lord, don't you? You know, and, and I realized he had been talking. I was singing to the back of his head the entire service. And um, but it, it's an important part of our Christian life and to join in and do it. And, and I love to do it. There's, I think there's advantages to sitting toward the front. And I'm not I'm a back row person myself, so I'm not putting you down back there. I mean, if God wants to convict... Okay. But... <laughs> I, so, of necessity, for a few reasons, I sit in the back while the worship service is going on, and I'm worshiping the Lord back there. So I hope you know I'm in the room. When I come out through the side here, it isn't that I've gotten off of some throne back there, and I'm coming out now to present myself. I'm enjoying the whole service. But on the Sunday nights, we get to kind of the last song on things... And then I'll make my way from the back and I'll come toward the front here to get ready to come up to teach. And one of the great joys is just to hear this wall of sound of people worshiping the Lord. It's great from the back, but to hear that coming from behind you, a great, great blessing. So I just want to encourage you, if all this is new to you, get going in that side of things, of ascribing praise to the Lord and lifting up thanks to Him. It, it really does bless His heart. Let me close with this. In, notice in verse 19 that a thankful life always leads to even greater blessing. When our children 
are thankful, we can bless them even more because we know they're safe. It's a safe thing to do that in their lives. They have the character for it. And, and so often the same thing happens spiritually here. So this, when, when this man here comes back and he praises Jesus and, and he thanks Jesus, not only does it bless God, not only does it bless Jesus, but it allows Jesus to bless him even further. And Jesus said, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. I don't know what verse 19 means. All I know is that as a result of his thanksgiving in bringing that back to Jesus to express it to Jesus, he received something more from Jesus that the other nine did not. Now that may mean that Jesus not only cleansed him of his leprosy, but then now whatever deformities that were a part of his nose or his ears or his hands or his feet were now healed by Jesus as a result of the man's faith. Could have been something uh, like that. Or it could very well, very well refer to the only thing in life that can be greater than a leper being cleansed of their leprosy, and that is a sinner being cleansed of their sin. And I am inclined to believe that that's what happened to this man uh, here. Jesus did not come into the world supremely to cleanse lepers. It's wonderful. But that's not what he came into the world supremely to do. But to cleanse sinners from their sin. And I don't think he would let a man like this leave his presence without that having happened. If you sit here today and you're not a Christian and you have never ever received the forgiveness of sin that comes from faith in Christ. Just as these men were cleansed of their leprosy by simply obeying Jesus' command, you can be cleansed of your sin. Most famous verse in the Bible, Jesus said, For God so loved the world, that's you, that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, that whosoever, that's you again, would believe in Him, trust in Him as your Savior, that you will not perish, but instantly receive everlasting life. And that gift from God, that cleansing from God, is available to you this morning just for the asking. Think about that word. Cleanse. Clean is a nice word. There's a gym that I go, try to get to three times a week to just get the heart pounding a little bit, in addition to just looking buff and, you know, and <laughs> just let me just roll. <laughs> but they show these music videos on there, and it just depends on what time of the day you come in what they're showing. But they got these blocks of time where they're doing the whole rap and hip-hop thing. And these videos are, they're not good. And I, ju and I just, uh, uh, just thinking about it last night as I was, uh, I was there for a little bit and I, and I, and I saw what was on there. And, and then, but then is it, you look at the culture as a whole um, and you, just, you say, that is wickedness. That is perversion. What's happening there in video after video after video is a million 
miles away from the heart and the intent of God for mankind. But we get used to it in the world. And you look at how widespread the wickedness and the defilement is today and how defiled people are. Young people, their minds, their bodies, their hearts, their emotions defiled before they even have a chance to grow old enough to realize these are valuable things to protect It's already been taken away from them by the culture and by others. And you wonder, you know, what in the world, you know, is there a place for cleansing? Is there a place for a fresh start? Is there a life that is clean to live in this world? One of the things that the world does, the devil always overplays his hand. He never knows where to stop. And so in individual lives, he pushes too far sooner or later. And a person wakes up one day and says, I don't like this. I don't like how unclean I am. I used to laugh at holiness or purity or being clean. Those things were things that I used to mock. But where the devil has pushed me and where I have willingly gone in my life, I've now come to a place where that is the most valuable thing to me in life now. And where can I turn to feel that again, to live that again, and win cleansing, win purity, win holiness becomes important to us or important to us again. It's wonderful to know that Jesus cleanses us of our sins. There is no sin, no series of sins in a human life, no lifetime of sin in a human life that is greater than the shed blood of Jesus Christ to provide us with forgiveness. And if you'd like to make Jesus your Savior and your Lord this morning, There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. They have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to receive God's gift of forgiveness and salvation. They'll give you a Bible and some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord. It's all there for the asking. All there for the receiving. Let's stand together and we'll pray.